Hello you and welcome back to What on Earth. I'm Sarah, your host, and every week I'll be taking you through the past, present and future of an environmental topic and hopefully leaving you with some ways to be more sustainable or at least some great facts to tell your mates. Basically, I'm trying to get to the bottom of what on earth is going on with the world and how we can help make the planet a better place. This podcast isn't about telling you that you're doing this wrong or you're doing that wrong. Essentially, you're not going to finish this episode and run for the nearest nuclear bunker. It's all good. So let's get stuck in. Last week, we spoke about air pollution and its effect on our health. This week, we're going to dive into sustainable eating. How to do it, why we should, and that it's much more nuanced than just not eating meat. Although that will help. Sustainable eating is a huge issue and it brings up really different challenges to the one presented by air pollution. If you missed last week's episode, don't worry, you can still grab it wherever you normally get your podcasts and you don't need to have heard it to listen to this one. So, throughout this episode, we're going to be speaking to Tessa, an amazingly knowledgeable food anthropologist, and she's going to tell us how we got where we are. Even just a couple of hundred years, you can see a much greater diversity of foods that were around. Speaking to people about where we might get our food from in the future. Well, there's this concept of vertical farming. And giving you the knowledge to take the first steps to a more sustainable diet. We have tons of alternatives already immediately to hand if we want to cut down on our meat consumption. It's fair to say that in the 21st century, we have a real problem with food. We're producing too much, using loads of chemicals, eating out of season, and on top of that, we're throwing away a huge amount of the food that's grown. But it hasn't always been this way. In fact, for most of civilization, food shortage has actually been the issue. We spoke to our favourite offal anorak, TEDx talker and resident food expert Tessa about how things got so bad. So I think if we look back a couple of hundred years, you could see, for instance, talk about meat, uh, that with this kind of greater connection and smaller supply chains, there was a real sense of circularity. Uh, meat would have been slaughtered on a Monday and then everyone locally would have kind of attuned their eating habits around that. So on Tuesday, Wednesday, you'd have the offal cuts and the things that perished more quickly. And then you might have kind of some of the sausages in the midweek and then the more expensive, fancier cuts towards the end of the week. Then the way that the slaughter was set up, we had thousands of slaughterhouses across the UK Um, We had over 5,000 and they've decreased rapidly. And is that because they didn't have anywhere to like store or refrigerate things like we do now? Yeah, exactly. So, fun fact for you, in 1948, so after the Second World War, only 2% of the UK public had a fridge. 2%? And 10 years later, it's only 12%. So the way they were eating was massively different because they couldn't just lob something in the fridge and it would keep for a week. Exactly. So it wasn't until the 60s that we actually started eating chicken. Um, what were we doing before that? Not eating chicken. Ha <laughs> uh, We were eating chicken eggs, but we were largely eating a lot of pork, beef, lamb. But chicken kind of came about with a lot of smart marketing. There were trends in um, kind of animal selection, antibiotics came onto the scene, more women had gone into the workplace following the war and so actually people started living much more as a nuclear family and there was a real need for 
quick, convenient food. There was definitely a de-skilling and people wanted something that would feed four people. You could put on a tray and in the oven really quickly. So chicken was marketed as the answer and the supermarkets just helped it to fly off the shelves. So do you think the war is where things really changed for us in terms of the way that we eat? The Second World War was a really big moment of change for the way that we ate. There was a real need um, for our food to just offer subsistence and that led to a decline in diversity. But it also meant that the way that we um, process food really changed. So if we were shipping food overseas, we wouldn't ship the bones as well because that was inefficient. So that really changed the way in which meat was cut. And there was a big trend towards kind of tinning food Um, And suddenly everyone was looking to what's the nutritional information around this food. So there was a a real need during the war to kind of get every last drop out of the food that we had. And of course, we had rationing. So rationing was, on the one hand, something that was quite austere, but it kind of democratised our food a little bit. Mm. The pregnant ladies were the, the healthiest they've ever been because everyone, men and women, were told that they were had kind of access to the, the same amount of things. Um, pregnant people, young kids, the elderly were given supplements, cod liver oil, etc. And you could actually eat quite a lot on the ration. And there was a real push towards um, growing our own. We became really self-sufficient. Prior to the war, uh, we imported half to two thirds of our food, which is kind of what what we do now Mm. but during the war obviously that massively shrunk and so we set up what were called victory gardens so even the moat around the tower of london was turned into a food garden oh my god and what would i have typically eaten if i was on rationing what are the kinds of food that i might have had well there was a real big push towards getting people to eat fruit and veg largely vegetables on the ration. So um, kids met characters like Peter Potato and Dr. Carrot. And so this is where the myth that carrots help you to see in the dark Is that a lie? Carrots aren't going to help me see in the dark. It's not a lie. Yeah, sorry. Sorry. This is where suddenly they discovered that carrots can help you see in the dark. Amazing. Um, So I think a lot of the marketing that we see aimed at kids now to try and get them to eat fruit and veg, making fun characters really started in the 40s. They put carrots on sticks instead of ice lollies. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's so disappointing. (laughs) There was no coffee. People were drinking chicory. But we were healthier. We were healthier, yeah. It's definitely, it's not as uh, sparse as as you might think. People were able to eat as much fish and chips as they wanted during the war. It was never rationed because the government felt They didn't want to be too much of an Annie state and they wanted to preserve kind of our British national dish. So fish and chips were never rationed. That is the dream. So you can't have much of anything else, but you can have as many fish and chips as you want all the time. One spoonful of jam a week, but all of the fish and chips you want, Sarah. And people were healthier. (laughs) So that's not to say that we should go back to a time of rationing, but it's a really interesting way to think about things being quite different because now we have malnutrition in the sense that people have so much cheap food at their fingertips, but they're not getting nutrition in the way that they were during rationing. Um, So was there ever a time when we ate sustainably compared to today? I don't think there was ever a time that we ate 
Absolutely sustainably because throughout history we've been vulnerable to times of famine and I think we can't romanticise the past too much. It was hard. That said, looking back even just a couple of hundred years, you can see a much greater diversity of foods that were around. Since 1900, we've lost 75% of our biodiversity, which is crazy. And people also used to be um, a lot closer to their food. They had a much greater connection with it, just to uh, purely down to the sheer proximity to their food, which maybe is not always a good thing. You might be up close with all the kind of blood and sh- the the animals and the farm, but also you you know what the food is. And then I think that kind of leaves you with a different appreciation, a different skill set and a different sense of um, value for that food. After the war, I think some people, especially in the meat trade, were a bit sniffy about women coming into the workplace and women not knowing how to cook in the same way that they did pre-war and they wouldn't be making their own black pudding anymore and they were kind of pathetic they were just, you know, putting a chicken on a tray. Now we've gone to the extreme of that, right, where we're quite squeamish, we don't want to get out a knife, we don't want to touch meat and I think this is it's not just an issue with meat we can see it all across different foods and it's it's that blend of a lack of knowledge but the sense that convenience and speed is everything and so we're in a position where we spend twice as much time looking at food on screens whether that's on social media or tv than we do cooking so it's an issue of priority and necessity but it definitely distances us from our food, causes us to ask less questions and makes us less able to be self-sufficient. Um, so when you look in the past where people may have used every single last bit of the animal, um, now we wouldn't wouldn't have a clue how to do that. Yeah, so this question of offal, would that have been normal in the past for you to be eating livers and kidneys and all sorts of bits and pieces that we're not really used to eating at the moment? But it's not just about people eating um, offal. I think in the past you used to have... The rag and bone man, we'll all remember him from history. He came around and he took away all the bones. It was typical for people to keep a few pigs that ate people's food waste, scraps, but also, yeah, would have kind of been around slaughterhouses and been eating inedible offal, which on the one hand might sound disgusting to you. It might sound incredibly efficient. Um, And the blood from the slaughter would have been used either to make black pudding, fed to the pigs, or used as fertilizer to help help grass and plants grow. Whereas now just goes down the drain, which is kind of crazy because blood is a really, albeit grim, a very highly nutritious, dare I say, food. Are there any other big changes from looking at pre-war to now in the sustainability of our food system other than diversity and how we grow food. On a positive note, a great thing that has changed is the safety of our food. I don't think we can be too romantic about the past. There were lots of great things about it, but also food was really susceptible to adulteration. Um, People were bulking up bread with sawdust or tucking a little bit of chalk into your milk. You might find that things are a bit rancid. In some cases, lead was smuggled into food. So... Yeah, we're in a better place when it comes to food safety today. Even though we might not be in as a sustainable place as they were, at least we've got healthy food and it's enough for everybody. So the point is trying to work out how we can make that food more sustainable. 
Exactly. I think what we need to do now is value the food that we do have. So from speaking to Tessa, I feel like it's pretty clear that having whatever we want, whenever we want it, is really bad for the planet. And I also think that we've become really acclimatised to the fact that we can just pop down to the supermarket and buy anything from anywhere in the world all year round. But what are the three main problems that food is causing the planet right now? I asked Aoife, our hop-up genius, to tell us a little bit more. Monoculture, meat and marine life, just to use three M's. Um, So (laughs) monoculture is how most of the crops around the world are grown today. What it means when I speak about monoculture is that the same crop is grown repeatedly on the same piece of land. And the main monocultures that are grown are wheat, rice, soy and corn. And they take up about 50% of agricultural land across the world. So that's a pretty whopping percentage, right? And the problem that goes along with that is that the soil becomes depleted as it's sort of rinsed of its nutrients. Like it's kind of, you've got a very extractive process going on as the crops are grown. Soil kind of depends on organic matter being put back into it, like things dying and just kind of going back into the soil to restore its nutrients after something's been grown on it. And with monoculture, that tends not to happen. It tends to be just used again and again and again. So as a result, you know, industrial farmers tend to use quite a few fertilizers in order to kind of stick nutrients back into the soil so that another round of growing can happen. Historically, what would have happened instead of that intensive farming would have been crop rotation, first of all, where a different crop might be grown on the soil maybe over three years and then the soil would be left fallow or left to rest for a year or a couple of growing seasons uh, to allow it to recover organic matter and nutrients in the soil. So that's the first kind of significant problem. How do we become so dependent on those four crops? Um, I suppose because they represent the four of the predominant crops that w- that populations around the world would have relied on traditionally anyway. So Europeans, very broadly speaking, would have been quite reliant on wheat. Wheat grows very well in Europe. It grows brilliantly in Russia, Ukraine, grows well in France, grows pretty well in Britain and the British Isles. Rice has obviously been a staple crop in Asia for a very long time. Corn has been a staple crop in Latin America and soy has been a staple crop in parts of Asia too. So There's a point to be made here that monoculture and industrial farming and intensive farming of crops and meat has allowed population growth to absolutely explode over the 20th century and the early 21st century. It's kept a lot of people alive and it's stabilised lives across the world. So it has actually allowed for a much better quality of life for a lot of people too. So I don't want to be 100% down on the idea of industrial farming because in a lot of ways it has sustained a lot of life. But it's not sustainable. They're two different things. So then looking at the way that we uh, raise meat across the world, humans are eating animals now in a totally unprecedented way. We tend to rear them in industrial farms in very close proximity to each other and out of their natural environment. And again, sort of uh, technological advances and scientific advances over the 20th century have allowed for, you know, much plumper meat, um, faster growing meat and like animals that can grow to a size way beyond what would be expected in the natural world so that they can be reared and slaughtered as soon as possible for human consumption. And does that mean essentially adding hormones and changing the way that they're reared and feeding them different things in order to mean that they're bigger or they've changed shape? So um, feeding them different things is a really important point. About a third of edible crops that are grown around the world at the moment are actually fed to animals. A third? A third, yeah, which uh, a third of those staple crops that I mentioned go to feed for animals, which is completely different to how we would have reared them previously, where they would have grown relatively in the open and mostly fed on pasture, especially in the case of like sheep and cows. It's a really unsustainable, really input intensive way to produce food. 
animals need a huge amount of water, they need to be fed, they need to be kept warm, they need like they have a lot of the same needs actually that humans have. But we're keeping them in very close quarters together, so in a lot of cases that they're quite susceptible to infections and illnesses kind of being passed along quickly. So in that case, we're quite often feeding or injecting them with antibiotics from an early stage in their lives. There are different regulations around the use of growth hormones and antibiotics around the world, but a huge amount of meat that's reared today is essentially reared using growth hormones to make them grow faster and antibiotics to stop the spread of disease. It's widely believed at this stage that that's contributed to the global antibiotics resistance crisis. So by uh, ingesting the antibiotics that the animals have ingested, we develop an immunity to them and they don't work on us anymore. And there's a lot of evidence coming out around that now. So a lot of people choose to eat fish because they think it's a more sustainable option than meat. But with everything you've just said, is that true? Um, unfortunately, it isn't. The way that the global fish stocks have been exploited uh, over the last 20 to 30 years, I think it's not particularly sustainable to choose fish over meat. And I know that a lot of people associate fish with health and maybe choose fish because they are more concerned about animal welfare of land animals, I suppose, and sea animals. But if you are trying to adapt to a more sustainable diet, being very mindful of your fish consumption is really important. Essentially, we're just very heavily overfishing and very irresponsibly fishing our seas and oceans at the moment. And the result of that is that diversity within the sea is collapsing in a lot of cases, like um, populations aren't recovering in the way that they used to. Obviously, sea temperatures are changing as well as a result of global warming. So we need to be very conscious of these things when we're when we're shopping for fish or when we're thinking about buying fish, that a lot of the certification would be on the more liberal side. So it's always worth doing an awful lot of investigation. Okay, so Tessa has walked us through the past. Aoife has told us what the problems in the present are. But let's find out what the future of sustainable eating might look like. We headed to Growing Underground, which is a farm in Clapham, in some really creepy but very fascinating World War II tunnels to see if we could start growing underground. Okay, so I want you to imagine we've just come inside a really tiny hundred-year-old lift which is taking us down into some World War II bomb shelter tunnels which are underground Clapham High Street. We're going 33 metres below ground. I've got Bethany here with me, who's going to show me around. I'm really excited to see what the farms look like, but I'm also a little bit terrified as we go further and further into the ground. I've been told when we get to the bottom, I'm going to get a hairnet and some wellies, which I'm pretty jazzed about. But mainly I want to see how on earth you grow without sunlight. Oh my God, this is it. We're in a farm. We're in a farm. It's massive. <laughs> Go on, walk on down. <laughs> what we have here is we have 100 metres and we still have, uh, we have a kilometre of space in total. So the farm itself uh, is only a little bit of what space we have. And we're looking to expand that in the future to grow throughout the tunnels and then beyond. So at the moment we're looking at fennel, we've got rocket. What's we've got some uh, radish over here. This is oh, our radish yeah. actually. And you can try some. Would you like to try some cabbage? Yeah, I would love to. What should we try? Let's try some red cabbage. Okay, we're going to try some cabbage. So what we do is we leave the seeds for a few days. That's so nice. Just to germinate. <laughs> <laughs> and then once they've germinated, we bring them under the light where they can grow. And this one again is, is coming out tomorrow. So the 21st and it's already ready. It's Just really like aromatic and fresh. It's nice, isn't it? If you like that, you're going to like the garlic that we have right yes. here. Yes. This is one of my favourites. That's great. Oh, it's garlicky. Yeah, it hits you It's like little, little shoots of garlic. Mm -hmm. And what have we got here? Coriander. This is coriander, yeah. This doesn't look like coriander yeah. that I'm used to. There's kind of like a seed on the top. 
and it looks more like I don't know more like a normal plant shoots of grass really yeah shoots of grass <laughs> and I, we actually have uh, broccoli as well which you're going to be surprised to see yeah because oh it, it looks just the same I thought it would taste different because it's grown underground but <laughs> that was I couldn't believe that it would taste the same as if it was grown outside but it literally tastes amazing and you can see here uh, how quickly all the things grow so this bottom bench we have something that was planted just on the 28th of July and the one at the top here was just grown on the 24th so there's four days different between this one you can see and the one right at the bottom there how do you grow it underground <laughs> So uh, how we start is we get a substrate mat, which is a recycled carpet material, and we sew on that just by hand. We actually, we got some sugar shakers from down the road at a local uh, sort of chef store, and we just sprinkle the seeds on across the mat, and then we take them into a dark room where they propagate for just a few days. And then after a few days, we bring them into the farm where they're under light. But currently, actually, the plants are sleeping. Um, their daytime is our nighttime, so the lights turn on around five o'clock. That's for a few reasons. The electricity is a lot cheaper in the nighttime. And also the lights give off that little bit of heat. So what we try and do here is control the temperature at all times. We've got the fans here that you can see. We've got the uh, dehumidifiers. And uh, by turning the lights off during the day when it's a bit sunnier upstairs, um, we can control the heat, keeping it down a little bit. Do the lights replicate sunlight, so UV rays? Yes, that's why we use the, uh, the lighting in here. And we can actually control the daylight hours. So we have, I think, around 16 hours per day. We turn them on at 5 at night and they turn off at about 10 in the morning. What we can do here is we can uh, cater to the supply and the demand. So uh, if, for example, the coriander went up in popularity, we could grow that really quickly. Um, everything takes around, uh, around or less than two weeks to grow. So if there was a sudden rise in the demand for, for one of the crops, we could just grow it and it would be ready in two weeks. And you can grow all year round, I'm assuming. That's one of the great things about indoor farming and controlled environment agriculture is that you can grow uh, all year round. So we're even here on uh, Christmas Day, um, <laughs> getting ready for January and the new year and the health kick that everyone goes through. So January is actually one of our busiest times as well as the summer. And who are they going to go to? So uh, we supply a range of retailers and wholesalers. We're in uh, Marks & Spencer, Waitrose, we're in Ocado, Whole Foods, Planet Organic, spreading across London and then further afield across the country. And, and do they grow quicker here than they would do outside? They grow a lot quicker. So here we have the peas in front of us. Mm -hmm. And actually, if you were to grow peas outdoors in a uh, traditional farm in the Northern Hemisphere, you would get about uh, six to 10 harvests a year. In a greenhouse, you'd have around 30 a year, and we can get 60 harvests of peas a year in the wow. farm. Wow. So it's much quicker, yeah, exactly. And one of the reasons for that is that you can grow all year round. So in the winter when you can't grow peas, uh, we can we can continue to grow. And does that lower the cost of what you're selling? Um, I would have thought so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and why did you get started in the first place? What was the kind of reason? So we have uh, two co-founders, Richard and Steve. And uh, Richard had what he calls a midlife crisis where he came to London and decided to do a film degree. And what happened there was he learned all about hidden London and underground London. And then Steve had been working in the same business for quite a while and he got his pension letter through and he felt that he wasn't doing uh, anything good for the world. So he left his job and uh, he decided to work with Richard and the idea of growing underground was born, matching uh, Steve's, Steve's idea for wanting to do something better and Richard's experience with underground London. So let's go back upstairs and meet co-founder Steve to find out more.
Since you started, have you seen a kind of uptake in underground farming, vertical farming as a way to produce more food sustainably? There's a misnomer in terms of like, the underground piece. Like there's people doing it on rooftops, there's people doing it in warehouses, whatever it may be. The phrase or the terminology that I think everyone's going to settle on is controlled environment agriculture. And it's just, it's about controlling the environment to a precision level. And it's like, right, okay, we can actually make sure it is 25.45 degrees consistently all year round or what, whatever the plants require for certain plants. But we can do that across many different elements, whether it's the CO2 levels, whether it's heat, whether it's humidity, whatever it may be. And it's about that precision of all of the inputs and that getting down to the granular level of all of those inputs rather than it being urban or vertical. We've got two long linear tunnels, so I struggle to call this place a vertical farm. So there has definitely been times over the last seven years since we looked at this in 2012 where we thought, oh, we're too early uh, or are we wrong? Uh, and there's definitely times when you're sat there in 2016, 2017 going, well, hang on a minute, like, we've probably spent a million pounds of people's investment, like, are, are, are we wrong? And then just sadly, the science keeps backing it up in terms of climate change. Like, there's a couple of people out there still trying to push back against it, but mm, you find a losing battle in terms of the science that's out there. That noise continues to go up after every cop meeting or whatever it may be. And so many people now that are starting to realise, oh right, this is now... An, fundamental I wouldn't go as far as an existential threat but it, it is an existential threat it's a fundamental threat to us and I'm glad that people are starting to pay attention to climate change rather than us having to have a climate catastrophe and then we do something about it and what would your advice be for the kind of average person listening if they want to eat sustainably what should they be doing eating sustainably oh wow uh yeah, it, it's 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 a massive challenge. You can you can eat seasonally uh, and and that focus on kind of seasonal produce in the UK, but inevitably a company in our cows we take seasonality out uh, due to the fact that we're growing all year round because we're protected from those adverse weathers. I, I think my challenge with sitting here and talking about eating sustainably is you can really fall into that middle class trap. I've, I was at a talk recently and somebody sat there and said, "Well, I don't understand why people don't just buy from the local farmers market." <laughs> it's like, well. That's because you really are living in a bubble of what people are facing in terms of the cost of food and, and the ability to feed their families. So to sit here and say, oh yeah, like people should be eating sustainably. First thing, like feed your family and do that however you've got to feed your family. The next bit is if you've got that luxury of going, okay, I'm feeding my family, I'm now going to think of the nutritional value and the sustainable impact of, of what I'm eating. That's a luxury for some people. So to sit here and, and, and say, well, everyone should be doing this or doing that, I just I find it difficult to be didactic about that. I agree with you. Do you think that people have any prejudice about food that's grown underground compared to food that's grown in soil? No. I, I, if people aren't going to buy it because it's grown underground, I'm never going to convince them. We had this issue at the start just in terms of, and this was like an internal conversation, which was I go in the tube every day and I see rats and mice and grease and dust and it's pretty grim in the tube on occasions. And People say, well, you're underground. It's like, well, actually, we're an old World War II RH shelter and inevitably it's not got all of the kind of grease and grime of a tube. It used to be a storage, document storage place. We knew it was kind of secure from rats, mice, water, or whatever it may be. And so it was just a, it was a case of if somebody's not going to buy our produce because it's grown underground, then I'm never going to convince them to buy it. And we've had zero pushback. Wow, so that was a really amazing place to go and visit. Don't forget, you can actually go and have a tour yourself by going to growing-underground.com. So that's what the future might look like. But what can we actually do today? Let's go back to Aoife and see if she's got some tips for us on how we can eat more sustainably now. 
the first thing I would recommend to people who want to have a more sustainable diet is to really watch their food waste. Start being much more mindful in the way that they shop and then eat. Um, use your leftovers. The internet is a wash with recipes for using up food, um, for using up leftovers that are languishing at the back of your fridge. If you want to cut down on your meat consumption, it means that you can probably afford to buy better meat less often, which is a real treat. You know, if it's something that you want to continue to eat, look for pasture-fed animals rather than um, corn-fed or, or fed on the crops that we've talked about before. Consider your shopping in a different sort of way, plan your meals during the week and just build in a little bit of flexibility to that so that you don't end up putting pressure on yourself to plan three meals a day and then you get an invite to dinner. This sounds really old-fashioned, but use your freezer. It's one of the most incredible um technologies that humans have for reducing food waste. Lots of people don't know the many, many things that you can freeze. You can freeze eggs, you can freeze hard cheese, you can freeze milk. A really handy thing to do with bread, which is a very wasted item, is just to keep it in your freezer and toast it to order almost. That's my favourite thing. That's your top fave. Yeah, yeah just there get you it go. out of the freezer, toast it. Ready to roll. You're done. Not a scrap wasted. Easy. We're at a bit of a crisis, or we're at a bit of a crunch point at least, in the way we think about food. We've become very, very disconnected from where our food comes from. And food can feel a bit disposable, which it isn't at all. It's a really valuable resource. Every raspberry that you eat, somebody has tended that. Lots of inputs have gone into it. Lots of water has gone into it. And even just chucking like a pun of raspberries that went a bit mouldy in your fridge, like that's a lot of nature wasted. It's a lot of effort wasted. So we're at a sort of a crunch point now. But I think food is the thing that people can really literally take into their own hands and change their habits around. And obviously at Hubbub, we've got lots of different initiatives and projects around that. Our website's packed with information on how people can waste less. We've got a community fridge network all across the UK with 70 fridges where people can drop off surplus food or pick up some food that's been donated by a retailer or by another household. I think we just kind of need to shift our attitude around food and see if we're the precious thing that it is and value it in that way rather than seeing it as a disposable thing that we can just chuck if it doesn't suit us to eat it that day and don't forget as always you can check out all of our products at hubbub.org.uk and thank you so much for listening to the hubbub podcast i hope that we've left you with something this week don't forget to follow us on twitter at hubbub uk on instagram at hello hubbub we've got a youtube channel that you can follow and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on itunes or spotify or wherever you get them review them we want your reviews tell your mates about it tell your nan and come back next week when we're going to be talking about sustainable periods I'm Sarah Dival. This is a Hubbard production and we'll catch you next week. <laughs>